Okay. We're going to go to Genesis and we're going to look just quickly at the account of Jacob wrestling with God. You're very familiar with that text, Genesis chapter 32. And then we're going to go back over to 1 Peter and continue our journey, which is where we started, uh, verse by verse, going through 1 Peter. But what happens in 1 Peter is illustrated here for us in Genesis chapter 32. Do you remember what we had learned from the experience of Jacob? In, in the illustration here of Jacob, we have illustrated for us a believer who's in fellowship and now, I mean, is in relationship with God, but he's moving into fellowship in this wrestling match that God set up. And in the wrestling match that God set up, he comes to the end of the wrestling match and we've gone through that. We won't do that again. He comes to the end of the wrestling match and God changes his name. And you remember what he changed his name from and to? Changed his name from Jacob to Israel. What does Israel mean? God rules. God rules. God rules. He conquered. He conquered Jacob. That's no small thing. You know, we have three enemies that are arrayed against us. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And the, and the flesh was conquered here uh, in experience. It's already been conquered positionally through what God did through His Son. But by experience, Jacob experienced the conquering of the fleshly nature that had plagued him all his life. You remember that Jacob means heel catcher. He was a manipulator. He was a schemer. He was a stumbling block. He was somebody who would take a spiritual objective and use carnal means to accomplish it. We've all done that, by the way. And we're all tempted to do that. So he comes to the wrestling match. He prevails, but really it's God who prevailed, but He gave Jacob the credit for the victory. That's the Christian life, isn't it? Jesus Christ prevailed and then turns around and gives us credit for having uh, a victory that He secured, won, and, um, and, and makes uh, applicable to the believer. So God's just gracious and kind, isn't He? And then He asked about His name. And we talked about the fact that the reason there was no need to ask about His name is because there's only one person now. He's been conquered. You and I have died. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, we will also be revealed with Him in glory. We have been through the crucifixion and we came out on the other end and we're brand new. We've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. Yet not I live. But Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Galatians 2.20 and then he says, so Jacob, we pick it up here in verse 30, Jacob called the name Peniel. You remember? What does that mean in the margin of your Bible? Face of God. What was the place called previously? Jabbok. What does Jabbok mean? Emptied. And so the place where he was emptied, the very same spot is the place where he was filled. And we talk about the fact that you're being emptied right now, wherever you are, you and I, on this ongoing process of God conforming us into the image of His Son. But the place where we're emptied is the place where we stand to get filled. And so he sees the face of God. And he says, I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. And just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Therefore to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Very simple principle that's very obvious then when you encounter Christ and you, you by experience, experience not just the work of the cross for you, but the work of the cross in you, it changes your walk. Jacob never walked the same after this. He carried with him a limp. He carried with him evidence of the fact that he had encountered God and God had encountered him and God prevailed. And then turned around and gave him credit for the victory. 
We talked about before, I wish I could say that through the rest of Genesis, that more often than not, that Jacob was referred to as Israel because that's the name of uh, the man of the Spirit. But that's not the case. It's actually the opposite. But you know what? The victory was secured nonetheless and it was secured for you and I through the Calvary and when Jesus came out of the tomb. See, the work of the cross for Jacob had already been received. God had made him promises and, and came to him at, uh, at Bethel, you recall. And, 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 and at Bethel, at that place where God met him um, in Genesis chapter 28, verses 10-22, through 22, that's where the work of the cross was applied for him. But years later, some 20 years later, in Genesis chapter 32, that's where he experienced the work of the cross in him. And uh, that's exactly the design of God for you and I. Is after having experienced, and most of us in this room have, and 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 by faith received the work of the cross on our behalf. Now God sets about in our spiritual journey to do the work of the cross in us. This was his jabbok. You might be headed toward one. You might be in one now or you might be coming out of it. Jacob came out of it with a different walk. And I'll assure you, if it's God and you and I encounter Him at our Jabbok, our walk will be different too. I'll assure you, it will be different. You can't have a real encounter with Jesus Christ and come away the same. And so he encountered the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, let's go over to 1 Peter. We're going to... Uh, Keep on going through our journey through First Peter, God willing. And we're going to look at First Peter chapter three, and we're going to begin in verse eighteen. First Peter three eighteen. And we're going to read and get as far as we can today with that. But in reverence and respect for God's holy word, if you're physically able, will you stand with me while we read it? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom we also, also He went and preached to the saints in prison, who formerly were disobedient. I'm sorry, the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is, an, there, also, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to Him. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer, uh, that he should live, no longer live in the, in the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. 
in regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. That's the word of the living God. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. Christ suffered once for sin. In the aftermath, not long after, um, the um, the new pope was uh, was uh, put into place. I think it was Palm Sunday. I was watching a news coverage report of him holding a Palm Sunday service in the uh, St. Peter's Square. As you might expect, there were thousands of people uh, crowded there, and he got in the uh, Pope mobile and made a, a, a little um, parade around the square so everybody could get as close to him as they could, and then turned around and sat back down on this red velvet-looking gold, I'm sure, laden, what looked to be a throne. It looked like a throne. That's what it looked like. It had all the pomp and circumstance of royalty. And he's all in that religious garb and what have you. And so he gets there and sits on that throne and then he has a little prayer bench in front of him. He goes over and prays on the prayer bench and holding in his hand is a, is a uh, blasphemous uh, crucifix. And uh, in the crucifix, you'll notice, as you are very much aware, some of you have Catholic backgrounds, there on that cross is who? Jesus. And there, there's the crucifix. And I just remember thinking, uh, you and me, you and Jesus need to switch places. Um, they still got Jesus on the cross, and every time they have the mass, we'll have the Lord's Supper, God willing, in about ten or fifteen minutes. But every time they have the mass, they re-crucify Jesus Christ. They believe that the blood and the body of Christ, through a doctrine called transubstantiation, literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. And they kill him all over again every single time they celebrate the Mass. The Mass is one of the most abominable and blasphemous acts that could be carried out on the face of the entire earth. The Catholic Mass. And so, so we celebrate and look to a cross that's empty. They, they look to a cross in which Christ is still on there because they don't believe this. They don't believe that He suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. They don't believe that He's the mediator, that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And they celebrate a blasphemous cross that wasn't sufficient enough to bring you and I into glory and make us right with God. We, however, celebrate a cross that's told of us in the Scriptures that Christ suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, and that through repentance and faith in Him that He successfully did it. Hallelujah. When we memorialize the Lord's Supper, we don't believe that there's anything about those elements that becomes anything remotely close to the body and blood of Christ. Those are symbols of the body and blood of Christ. But we're celebrating and memorializing a finished work. Majority of the time when we as Christians get in trouble in our fellowship with the Lord, it is because we doubt the finished work of Christ and its application to the believer. We, that's the design of the devil. If the devil can be successful in, in wooing us into believing that there's any unfinished work 
in the work of Christ, then he's got a foothold that could become a stronghold. The work that Christ has done and God did through the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of his son is complete. He did it one time. He's not going to do it again. The Bible says to treat it as anything less than what the, the testimony of Scripture assigns to the blood of Christ is to, according to Hebrews chapter 10, trample underfoot the blood of the covenant. And in so doing that, the Bible says you've insulted the Spirit of grace and that if you keep doing that, there is no hope for you. Have you ever thought about the fact that you could insult God? You know how you can insult God? You can insult God by casting doubt on the power and the validity and the credibility of His grace through His Son. God has assigned unmerited favor to you and I through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son. And it's a completed work. And it was the just who did it for the unjust. The just, the one who is just, took on the sins of the unjust so that He could make a way for the unjust to be made just. Hallelujah for that. So that means that the moment that we repent toward God and put faith in His Son, the Bible says that the gavel comes down from heaven and God decrees that you and I are not guilty. We're not guilty. We're innocent of all charges. And he says, so he did that to bring us to God. We're now right with God. He put Him into death in the flesh and made Him alive by the Spirit. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness, raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Romans chapter 1 says, By the Spirit of holiness, God raised His Son from the dead, and in so doing that, declared Him to be the Son of God. The resurrection, the reason we make so much of it on Sunday morning is because that's the capstone of Christian faith. Christ was raised from the dead. And in so being raised from the dead, the just has made the unjust just, by taking on our sin, God raised Him from the dead to say sacrifice accepted and now that we're been made free. We talked about this before that when He said in Romans chapter 1 declared, declared to be the Son of God through the resurrection of the dead that, that word declared comes from a Greek word from which we get the English word horizon. And just like the horizon is a demarcation line between earth and sky that says there's a distinction between earth and sky. There's an identifying mark that says the sky stops here and the earth starts here. That every time we look at the horizon is a testimony that the resurrection of Jesus Christ puts Him head and shoulders above all other claims of how to be right with God and through whom you can be right with God. Hallelujah! I encourage you have a hallelujah fit and a hallelujah hooting nanny every time you see the horizon and point it out to your children and say, see that line up there? Every time I see that on Kennesaw Mountain, I go across on, on uh, Due West Road and I look up there and see that line going across there and I go, hallelujah, Jesus is alive. Hallelujah, Jesus is alive. He's alive and because He's alive, so am I. Point that out to your children and say, Sweetheart, you see that line right there? Do you know what that's put there for? That was drawn by the finger of God to declare to the heavens and to you and I that God raised His Son from the dead and that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by Him. 
He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. It doesn't mean that if I be praised. He said, if I be lifted up on that cross, and God took that cross and put it way up there above Muhammad and Buddha and every other ism there is and every other wasm and made them wasms and said, that's my son. Look unto him and you'll be saved. And so the Holy Spirit did that. And by whom He also went and preached to the spirits in prison who were formerly disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Do you remember what that means? Does anybody remember what that means? We went through this one Sunday. What does that mean? Anybody? Huh? Right. Meaning what? That's right. The demons came and intermarried with the humans in order to and, and what was what came forth from that union? Right. And some mutant angel demon combination, a demon demonic angel human combination came from there. And what was God trying what was the enemy trying to do? Stop the seed of Christ. He was trying to stop the redemptive work that had been promised where? When? In the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, right? He said, I'm going to do this. And so the devil set about his job. His job was to mess that up. And so what he did was, the angels from the demonic realm left their place, their abode, came down to earth, and started having relations with women. And a mutant human race came out, and that's the reason for the flood. God got rid of that rid of that entire human race. Do you remember when we talked about that? That what is a conservative estimate of how many people are on the face of the earth when that happened? Consider a billion. A billion people. So out of a billion people, God spares eight. And a billion people are judged by God. And eight came through the flood because the divine long-suffering had waited long enough and God said, okay, here's the deal. Because of this muted race that has come from this and this human mutation to try to mess up the redemptive plan that God had planned all along through His, through his Son and He found one family that had not been yet tainted by the mutation and it was the family of who? Noah. And so God wiped out everybody else and Noah preached for 120 years while he's building the ark. God saves a few, and they were saved through water. And then in verse 21, he said, There's also an antitype now which saves us, which is baptism. Now, do you think that means that we're saved by water baptism? How could it not mean that? How could it not mean that? Saved by grace through faith. It's about whatever teaches you're saved by water baptism. It's in this text. Look what it says. They were saved through water. There's also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. And in parentheses in your Bible it says not the removal of the filth of the flesh but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is this. The removal of flesh through water baptism doesn't save you. That the ark is a picture of going through the judgment of God and being protected by that judgment because, and here's the epicenter of what we're talking about this morning, 
To be in the ark is the spiritual equivalent nowadays to being in who? Christ. And the pitch that was used, we talked about this, to seal the ark, seal the ark to keep the water from coming in, is the same word from which we get the word atonement. And that saying that the atoning grace of God expressed through His Son, the pitch that was put on that ark, protected us from the wrath of God that we would have otherwise incurred because to be in the ark is to be in Christ. And now He's saying now there's a spiritual baptism that takes place. And it's talked about in Romans chapter 6. And let's go look at it. In Romans chapter 6, He's talking about the spiritual baptism that takes place. And look what He says here in Romans 6. The Apostle Paul says in verse 3 of Romans 6, Do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk. How? In newness of life. When Jacob was wounded, by God at His hip, God changed His walk. He was walking in newness of life. I'm going to tell you something right now. We're not saved by faith and works, but we are saved by a faith which does work. And a life that's not been examined is not worth living. And I'm going to tell you this right now. If habitually over time there has been no change, there's probably no salvation. The Apostle Paul is confronting these people who would say, Oh, Paul, you say that grace exceeds our sin. And so because grace exceeds our sins, why don't we just go out and sin like crazy? Because after all, grace is greater than our sin. So therefore, and Paul says, in verse 6-1, he says, What shall we say then? These are the questions he's being asked him. Shall we continue in sin that grace may be abound? And look what he says in verse 2. Those of you in the Roman study will know this. He says, certainly not. You know what the closest thing we can get to in English from that is? Ugh! That's the closest English translation you can come to that. Ah! What? That you would continue in sin that grace may abound? He's going, no! How could you think that way? Ugh! Ugh! No! You're missing the point. What Paul is saying here is this. We are not involved in a creedal Christianity. We are involved in a Christianity that does have creeds. But we are in Christ. We have been changed. We're brand new. We are brand new. We're a new species of being. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He's saying, listen to this, look, don't you know that when you were baptized into Jesus, when you were saved, what he's saying, that the spiritual baptism took place, whereby God, through the Holy Spirit, baptized you. Think about it. The Holy Spirit took hold of you. Now, I've baptized a lot of people. It's a privilege to do so. But it doesn't matter who baptizes them. It doesn't matter what kind of water you get put in. Because we buy the water from Cobb County. It can't save you. And so, but, but when you look at the think of the water baptism, when the day that you were saved, the Holy Spirit took you, and, and, and here's what He did. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that by the Holy Spirit we were all baptized in, the body, in one body, the body of Christ. He took you and He took me and He took us gently by the hand and He immersed us into Jesus Christ's death whereby His death is now credited to you and I. 
but he didn't stop there. And that's the thrust of Peter's message. He said, then... He took you, and rather than letting you struggle down in there in the water, like that, and holding you down, for He took you and got you all the way under, and then lifted you back up. And when He did that, He lifted you back up into the very life of Jesus Christ. And here's, here's Paul's question. You think that that could happen to you and not evoke change? Understand, this is not a creedal confession. You are now new. This is a positional truth. This is an act of God. God, supernaturally, the Holy Spirit said, I baptize you, Lindsay Lewis, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And He baptized me into the death of Jesus Christ and I was buried there. Under, I was buried. You were too. And then He pulled me up after three days into the very life of Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm eternally saved. Because I no longer live. And you don't either. Christ lives in you. And, and, and he said, Jacob, let me tell you something. That happened to you earlier in Genesis. But you have continued to connive and swindle and dance around that which I want to do in your life to bring it home by experience. And I want to bring it home to you by experience. But I got to do it's going to take some work because I've got to bring you to a place where you're emptied of the confidence that you had in yourself when we met. Because you've still got too much of that left. And I want to strip you of it. So I've got to wound you. I've got to get you in the side. And your walk's going to be different from now on. Because it's the work of the cross I've done for you that saved you. But it's the work of the cross I do in you that sanctifies you. And so like I was telling Abigail the other day, we went to go see where she was born at Kenneston Hospital. And I said, Abigail, look at that building over there. It's her birthday. I said, you ever been to the building where you were born? She said, well, of course you've been there. Stupid question. You just don't remember it. And so I said, okay, let's go over here and we'll look at the building where you're born. And we went over and looked at it and she said, well, gee, that's great. That is where I was born. And I got to thinking about it. I don't have to go to the promised land to go to the hill I was born in. I've already been there. I'd like to go someday, but I don't have to go there. And I don't remember it. I don't remember what it looked like, just like Abigail didn't remember the building and the surroundings telling me about it all, but she's been there. And you know what? That's the same thing for you and I. I have been and you have too if you know Jesus to Calvary. And at the moment that God baptized His Son and baptized into death and buried Him and then raised Him for new life, and God gives us insight in 1 Peter as to what went on there. He baptized Him and while He was down under the water, He went down to the bowels of hell and preached to the angels that lost their place and said to them, My redemptive work was accomplished. And then was raised to new life. Now He's at the Father's right hand. And that's why I can say right now, and you can too, that we're seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus before we even get there. And the Apostle Paul's saying, you've got to understand this for what's coming. I'm going to tell you what's coming in the United States. Now unless a revival takes place, here's what's coming in the United States. It's, it's happening right now. The government is positioning, the enemy is working through the government, through the, through the sovereign will of God, to position and posture the gospel as hate speech. Making it prosecutable. You say, oh, that can never happen in America. That's the very thing that's leading us to it, is apathy over the fact that it can't. Can it happen? It happened in Europe. Greg, you're from Europe. The new dark continent is Europe. 
Not spiritually speaking. I mean, spiritually speaking, the new dark continent is Europe. And we're becoming fast the same thing. So, on the heels of knowing that the promulgation of the gospel is going to become hate speech. The moment that Robert put a post on his uh, Facebook page at Sonia about their broken heart over the move that the Boy Scouts made to let sodomites in, they, they were inundated with people accusing them of hate speech. That's hate speech to speak the truth and to talk redemptively about God's Son. Now that won't mean much to you if you don't care anything about the Gospel because you will do business as usual. But here's, what, here's what's going to happen. Sunlight is the best disinfectant there is. And, and as soon as this begins to happen, and it's already started to happen, the IRS is now prosecuting and targeting people because of their political ideology and taking and giving their names of their contributors to their political enemies in order to posture things so that you can prosecute somebody for preaching the gospel. It has nothing to do with politics. I couldn't care less about politics. It has nothing to do with that. It's the gospel. The old rub is not about Democrat versus Republican, conservative versus liberal. It's about God and the kingdom of light pitted against the kingdom of darkness. And in America, it's going to become hate speech to preach the gospel. Now, the Lord's saying, you need to know all this behind-the-scenes stuff that happened so that you could be armed with the same mind that my son had. And that is this. If my suffering is going to bring about the redemption of other people, then count me in. That's what Peter's saying. If my suffering means that God is going to work redemptively through my suffering to advance the gospel, then so be it. That's what he's saying. He said there's some behind-the-scenes things you need to know about that though. You need to know the glories of that which has been accomplished for you. You need to know that He died once. He's at the Father's right hand. He ever lives to make intercession. The thrust of the text is saying this. He overcame the muted race that tried to stop Andrew. The promises He made in chapter 3. He flooded the earth to overcome them. Raised up a family, Noah, and his wife and his children and his daughter-in-laws. Put them in the ark. Spared their life sent His Son, put Him on the cross, raised Him from the dead three days later, did all of this work once for all, and then turns around and has credited you and I with the eternal glory of it, secured a place in heaven for us forever, arm yourself with that, because when the suffering comes, that will get you through. That's what He's saying. He's saying that the, 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 the persecution that comes, persecution has a, has a purifying effect on the church. Look what he said. He said, listen, he said, you know what? You know what? When this happens, let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. I mean 4. Therefore, since Christ also suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves. Feed your spirit with this same mind. The mind of Christ. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It does not mean that we're no longer going to sin. It doesn't mean that he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased to sin. It means that he who has suffered in the flesh ceases from sin. In other words, persecution has a purifying effect on God's church. And those who hang on to their profession and still promulgate the gospel are going to suffer for it. But you know what? 
It's going to trim off the excess, and we're going to live holier lives than we've ever lived. And that's wonderful. You know why? Because there's going to be a distinct difference between those who belong to Christ and those who don't. Because right now, because of the way we're living, we've confused everybody around us, and they don't know what it means to be a Christian because we've displayed little or nothing of Him. We need to repent. We need to arm ourselves with the glories of what He's done. Arm ourselves with this mind and this attitude. Are you willing? Am I willing to go through the suffering that's going to come our way as a result of living, promoting, advancing, and securing the gospel in the lives of those around us who are going to hell? Are we going to be willing to make disciples? Are we going to be willing to stick it through? Are we going to be willing to go public with, with what we've been in the closet with? Are we going to be willing to say, this is who I believe in? This is my defense for the hope that lies within me? Are we going to be armed with that mind? Are we going to be armed with that? Jesus said, this is my mindset. I will go do this because this will purchase the redemption of those who I have chosen from the foundation of the world. And we need to be armed with the same thing. My suffering does not add to the suffering of Christ. It's a reflection of it. It's a manifestation of it. It doesn't redeem anybody. It gives evidence of having been redeemed. And it gives evidence of the life of Christ and those who have no idea why He came and what God did through Him and what it can mean to them through repentance and faith. This is our grace. This is happening. It's real time. This is happening. I'm not a conspiracy theorist person who reads blogs. I don't know how to spell blog. I don't know how to look up a blog. I don't know how to turn on the computer. I can just see what's happening. And this is what's happening in the Word of God. He is abandoning us. He is leaving our culture to its own. He's giving us what we've insisted on. I want you out of my family. I want you out of my school. I want you out of my choices. I want you out of my relationships. And I want you out of my government. Once and for all, get out, God. And God's saying, okay, I've hung around. As long as I have ordained to hang around and I'm lifting my hand off of you and I'm going to give you what you're asking for. Don't resent the President of the United States for that. This is God's doings and it is marvelous in our eyes. The President of the United States is but a tool being used by God who turns His heart at His discretion wherever He wants it to go. Don't resent that. You cannot Walk in kingdom truth if you keep looking back and going, gee, I wish America was the way it used to be. You've got to put your hand to the plow and not look back and say, you know what? We're here for the gospel. We lost sight of that, y'all. We lost sight of the fact that we're here for the gospel. And we're making compromises every day about the gospel in order to advance our career and keep our standing in front of men whose commitment to us is razor thin. And has no idea the truth of what which we stand because we have bled so into the spirit of the age that there is no difference between us. I've said this story before, but I went and go. We had a September 11th commemoration service in downtown Kennesaw, and all everybody was there. It was an ecumenical meeting. The Catholic guy was there, and everybody's ism and wasn't was there. And we were in this meeting, and the senior pastor sent me to go in his place because he didn't want to go to the meeting. And said, so Go find out what our priorities of the program, and then come back and tell me. And so I went to the meeting and endured most of it. And got to the end of it. And some guy who has now left his wife, this guy has now left his wife, he's a pastor, a local pastor, who has divorced his wife and said he had a right to do it and has asked the church to keep him on as pastor and they're doing it. And this is the guy who spoke up and said this. He spoke up and he said, well, at the end of it, he was real preachy. And he was doing it to draw attention to himself. You could tell it. He said, bless God. I think while we've got all these people together in downtown Kennesaw, we need to call them to repent. 
And somebody looked at me and said, what do you think, Brother Lindsay? You haven't said a word. I said, I think we ought to get on the stage of downtown Kennesaw and apologize to them. Everybody went, they didn't appreciate that. He said, apologize to them. I said, yeah, we're to apologize to them. Because we have not acted Christ-like in front of them. And before God ever wants them to repent, He's asking us to. We need to apologize. The Jesus that you have seen very little in us of, I'm so sorry that we've acted like that in this community. They decided not to do that. But I'm here to tell you, you know what? That's what we need to do. We need to repent. Let me ask you a question. If you have repented to a God and put faith in Jesus Christ, He did that so you would walk in newness of life. Jacob never walked the same again after Padiah because he was emptied. And I wonder, have you let Christ empty you? Have I let Him empty me? Are we walking the same in the same pattern that we did before? I'm not talking about a life defined by the things I don't do. We as Christians are great at making lists like that. We'll make a list and then make it yay long about the things that we don't do that, that makes us holy. That discredits the word holy. It's the things that we get to do. And you know what the primary one is? We get to obey God and we get to walk in agape love. How much love have we shown others? Have we withheld the greatest word they can ever hear? Have we taken Christ's command to make disciples seriously? Are we just kind of easing on by? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? It's a great one to ask right now. Because here's the thing. There's a, there's a, there's a, a precious lady in our fellowship who wrote down a prayer request. And I'm not trying to single her out, but she wrote down a prayer request. I, I, I pray for all of us because I love the way she put it. Please pray that I will live witness and act like the Bible is true. That's a great prayer request. Let me ask you a question. Can you honestly say right now, look at your checkbook, look at your calendar, look at the Word of God. Do you live, pray? The pray was in there. Do you live, pray, and profess like the Bible it's true.